Job chapter number 2. If you're a student of the Bible, you're familiar sort of probably with what's going on already in the book of Job. Uh, Job has lost everything that he has. He's lost uh, his family, uh, his children. He's lost his wealth. He has lost his health. He's lost everything but the Lord, and he still can go on. So what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, I mean this. If you've got the Lord, you can go on. Amen. No matter what else life may rob from you, uh, if you've got the Lord, you've got enough to go on. And in Job chapter number 2, we read just a few verses here, and I want us to notice a phrase that's used. I'm asking the Lord to help me. This is a little different kind of message than what I normally preach, but I believe it's the mind of God today. Job chapter number 2, verse number 7, the Bible says, So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for what you've already done. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for how you've already been working in our midst. I pray, Lord, that now nobody in this room would do anything to hinder the work of the Holy Spirit, but that we with open face and open heart would receive the truth of your word. And I pray, Lord, that as your spirit wields his sword, the word of God, that a great eternal work would be done in our hearts and lives. Lord, we know that will not be done against our will. We have to be willing to receive your word. But I pray this morning that we would with humble hearts receive it, that you may be glorified. Lord, I don't know the heart's condition of any person here. There could be people in this room. It wouldn't be a surprise in a crowd this big for there to be somebody that's lost. Lord, I pray that if there is, you'd show them that their greatest need, Lord, beyond money, beyond stability, uh, beyond position, uh, beyond popularity, that their greatest problem is their sin problem and that their greatest need is a Savior. And I pray they'd not leave this place ere they bowed the head and heart before you and asked you to forgive them of their sins and been gloriously born again. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the truth of your word. Bless it now. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to take notice of verse number 7 with me. And I want you to hear carefully what uh, the wife of Job says to him. The Bible says, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. I'm interested in the usage of this word curse in this passage. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you I am not a Hebrew scholar. I'm not a Greek scholar. I struggle with English sometimes. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, I'm like Dr. Tom Malone. Dr. Tom Malone said, I know a little Greek and a little Hebrew. Uh, he said, little Greek runs a deli and little Hebrew runs a dry cleaner. Amen. I, I'm, I'm not a scholar. I'm barely a student. And I will also tell you that I am not a uh, large fan of leaning upon concordances and things like that for definitions. You say, well, preacher, why is that? Is it wrong? Well, no, I don't think it's wrong necessarily, but you're trusting the words of men to try to define the Word of God. You know, there's a better way when you study your Bible uh, to uh, ascertain the meaning of words. You can look at the context of the word, and oftentimes that will give clarity. You can also compare other times that that word is used in the word of God. And then one of the things I enjoy doing is studying in my Bible and finding out the different ways that the King James translator translated a given Hebrew or Greek word. Say, preacher, why is that? Because there's a lot smarter than you and me. Amen? Uh, these men in translating the Word of God for us into English did a miraculous thing, a monumental thing. And oftentimes when you look at a word and how it is used elsewhere in Scripture, you get an appreciation for the various dynamics of what that word means. It becomes rather than unilateral, it becomes rather than one-dimensional, a multi-dimensional word. You understand what all it may have encompassed and what may have been swept into its usage. And when I read my Bible here in verse number 9, the Bible tells me that, that Job's wife looked at him and said, curse God and die. 
The word that's used there for curse is a Hebrew word. It's called barak. And, you know, there's various definitions that are given to it, but just looking at how the translators use this word in my King James Bible, I find that it appears on several occasions. In fact, there's hundreds of times in the Old Testament this word is used, but it is found several times even in the book of Job. We don't have to go far to find out where it is used. In fact, we can go back to chapter 1. I want you to go back there with me, and I want you to read with me these few verses, and I'll point out where it is used. The Bible says this in Job chapter 1, verse 6. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast not thou made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed Barak. Thou hast blessed, that's Barak. Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse Barak. He will curse Barak. Do you hear me? He will curse Barak thee to thy face. I'll tell you something interesting about that Hebrew word Barak and how it's used in your Bible. The word literally means to bless and kneel, or to salute and curse. One commentator defined it this way, to kneel by implication, to bless God in adoration or man as a benefit. And also by euphemism, to curse God or the king as treason. You'll also find it, by the way, when the Bible describes the group of men, sons of Belial, that were gathered to give testimony against Naboth in the days of Ahab and how the Bible says they gathered together and they accused him of blaspheming. Barak, same word. You say, preacher, why is that interesting to you? Are you suggesting somewhere it's not uh, translated correctly? No, I believe every word in my King James Bible is exactly what it ought to be. But what I find interesting is to look at the moments in people's lives and to recognize that there was a hair's breadth difference between the blessing and the cursing. I will preach to you on this thought this morning. Seeing the blessing in your life. You're going to come across all sorts of events and moments and experiences in your life. And when faced with them, you will have a choice as to how you interpret them. And you will have a choice as to how you react to them. In Job's circumstances, Job's wife says, why don't you just curse God? Satan had said that he would. He said, Job's going, if you take all these things away, if you rob him of his children and his wealth and his health and his, and his home and his marriage, if you take all these things away, why God, he'll curse you. I'm glad to report when he could have cursed, he blessed. And can I say in your life, when faced with situations, you say, preacher, that's a curse in my life. No, it might be a blessing in your life. Preacher, I've got reason to curse the Lord for what He's done. No, if you look closer, you might find you have reason to bless the Lord for what He's done. Now, let me be abundantly clear with my uh, theme this morning. Job's wife saw a reason to curse the Lord. But Job saw a reason to bless the Lord. Seeing the blessing of God in your life, it's not a matter of delusional fantasy. Job was not pretending as though everything was fine. That years ago, and most people uh, that are in this room that ain't got a little bit of snow on top won't even know who I'm talking about. But years ago, there was a man very popular, Norman Vincent Peale, and he used to preach the, the theory of the power of positive thinking. And the idea was you could transform your circumstances if you just had positivity in your thought and in your mind. But the truth of the matter is, you can try to think positively about your circumstances. That ain't going to change your circumstances. I'm not asking you to put on rose-tinted glasses this morning. I'm not asking you to pretend as though bad things are good things. But I am saying that we can recognize even in bad things that all things work together for good to them that know God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. So it's not a matter of delusional fantasy. But let me say, number two, it's not a matter of denial of facts either. Some people, the way they navigate life is with their head buried in the sand, pretending as though there are no problems in their life. 
But you know, the truth is, God never calls us to live that way. In fact, I would say this, that when we refuse to acknowledge the difficulties and struggles of life, we rob God of great means to work and deal in our lives. How many times does God, hey, listen, through the troubles, through the trials, how many times through the storm does He show Himself mighty? And if we refuse to acknowledge that we even have problems in our life, we are assuming we don't need the help of God in those problems. I like what the Old Testament psalmist said. He hath made darkness his pavilion. Sometimes you want to get close to God, you're going to have to go through some darkness. Sometimes you're going to have to go through some troubles. Hey, every time, I don't find anywhere in my Bible that God ever ran from a storm. He always ran right into the middle of them. Uh, We find every time, you don't ever see Jesus walking away from a storm. You always find Him walking right into a storm. I'm glad to report to you this morning, hey, you got a storm going in your life. You better look for Jesus. He might just be walking around in there. God does not ask us to deny the facts of the difficulty of life, but rather seeing the blessing. It's not a matter of delusional fantasy. It's not a matter of denial of facts, but it is a matter of deliberate faith. So what do you mean, preacher? It's this. It's saying, I know it's bad. I'm not pretending it ain't bad. I know I don't have any options. I'm not pretending I do have options. But though I have no options, I've got a God. And I know that I, though I, hey, listen, I got no plan and I got no solution, but I've got a God that always has a plan and that always has a solution. Job didn't bless the Lord because things were easy. Job didn't bless the Lord because he had no problems. Job blessed the Lord because God was as good on his worst day as he had been on his best day. He said, I'm not going to shake up on God just because things have gotten difficult. I think probably a clear scriptural example of this is Moses in the land of Egypt. Listen to what the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 11. He says, by faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Why would he do that? The Bible says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? For he had respect under the recompense of the reward. Listen to this. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He wasn't running because he was scared. He was running because he trusted the Lord. He didn't run and have his, uh, you know, head looking backwards behind him trying to find out where the enemy may be lurking. He was confident that God was in control of it all. I want you to think with me for a moment this morning about this idea in our life. Seeing the blessing of God or seeing a curse from God in our lives. And by extension, whether because of that we bless the Lord or whether because of that we curse the Lord. Think about three individuals with me this morning. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. When you study that word blessing, it's an interesting word in your Bible. First time it appears is when God creates the whales. I guess God liked whales. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, I don't know why I asked you to say amen. I don't know why you said amen, but there it was. Because <laughs> the Bible says that he blessed the, that the Lord uh, said they are blessed. Amen. I guess that's why we did it. Uh, but we find it in uh, oft repeated in the life of an Old Testament man by the name of Abraham. Now, when we read about him, his name's not been changed to Abraham yet. He's still called Abram. But we read about what we could call the genesis of his faith in the Lord. God evidently at some pri- time prior to this had spoken to Abram and commanded him to leave his family. And in Genesis chapter 12, we have sort of a renewing of this calling of God upon the life of Abraham. Look at it with me. The first three verses. The Bible says, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. Abram could have heard, I will curse thee. I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. He could have heard that he would be a curse. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Now, before we get into our points here, can I just set the stage for you? Abraham's living in pagan darkness. The Bible calls him a Syrian ready to perish. He wasn't looking for God, but God came looking for him. And God speaks to Abraham out of that blindness and darkness religiously that he had been living in and speaks and calls him to a new way of living. The word that God uses as a touchstone concerning the calling of God on the life of Abram is the word blessing. 
He says, I will bless thee, verse 2. He says, thou shalt be a blessing, verse 2. At verse 3, he says, I will bless them that bless thee. But I wonder if Abraham had looked down through the ages and seen all that that calling would entail, I wonder if he would have called it a blessing. I want to think about this with me a moment. Do we view our calling as a blessing or as a cursing? Every one of us is called to follow the Lord in faith. Every one of us is called to serve the Lord. And I'm going to be honest with you. I I guess maybe if I had known, and I'm thankful, I've got a wonderful church. I've got a wonderful Savior. I've got a wonderful family. Uh, God has blessed me. My life is an embarrassment of the blessings and grace of God. But I'll tell you this, man. If I could have seen all that pastoring would have looked like uh, from day one of stepping into it, I might have turned and ran. If I had known what it would entail, if I had known what it would have involved, and if Abraham, if he somehow could have looked down through the ages, I wonder how he would have described and defined in this moment the blessing of God. This speaks of our surrender to the Lord. And notice a few thoughts here. Verse number 1 deals with the prerequisites for this calling. Now, here's why I say this. Because Abram, he's not called to great riches. He's not called to great fame. He's not called to great power. If you know the life of Abraham, you know, in fact, he enjoyed all of those things. But God didn't dangle those things in front of him like some sort of carrot. Rather, he said, Abram, I want you to leave all this behind if you're going to follow me. Preacher, why would a person view serving God as being a curse and not a blessing? Well, I would say, number one, because he was called to leave familiar surroundings. The Bible says that the Lord said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country. And I don't know about you, I'm nervous when I travel. I like to travel, but I'm nervous when I travel. I am. If I get in a place where, I mean, I I like knowing where all the roads go. I get into a place where I don't know where all the roads go, man, and I, I start getting nervous, you know. And and you can imagine the anxiety. We're living in a time of, of technology and connection, but imagine for Abram, he is surrounded by a support system. He's used to and familiar with everything in his life. He enjoys the food that he's familiar with, the music he's familiar with, the people he's familiar with, the customs he's familiar with. And the calling of God says, Abram, I want you to leave all that behind and go to a new place. He's called to leave familiar surroundings. Not only that, number two, he's called to leave his family. He says this, from thy kindred. In other words, whenever he left, and we sometimes imagine that Abraham wasn't leaving much family behind, but there's no reason to assume that. Abram, no doubt, and at this time in human history, men tended to live a little bit longer, and no doubt Abram had many deep connections to people that he loved and cherished very much. And God's calling on his life is, Abram, I want you to leave all those people behind. Now, it's not like today where you might leave and then you jump on Skype, jump on a messenger, jump on text message, whatever it might be, and be able to connect and and talk to people. They weren't living in a time where there was a road system developed where you could come back and you could see people. They were living in a time where when Abraham left, he had no anticipation of ever seeing them again. Can I tell you this? Sometimes serving God will separate you from people. Sometimes even people you love. He was called to leave his family. Not only that, he was called to leave his father's house. He says this, from my father's house. Now that's interesting. Because the Lord's already said, leave your kindred. But now he says, leave your father's house. Here's what he's saying. The stability and security and safety of that place. We don't know exactly what sort of position Abraham's family enjoyed before he was called to leave and became his own family. But I think it is reasonable to assume, especially given the years afterwards when you see snapshots of his relatives, they seem to be wealthy. They seem to have much means and, and, and much ability. And no doubt, when he was called to leave, he was leaving a place where everything had been taken care of for him. Can I tell you this? If you don't have needs, you won't need God. And I don't think it's holy to suffer and do without. I don't think it's righteous to, to, to not have things that we wish we had. But I will just tell you, if you're going to need God, you're going to need something if you're going to need Him. And Abram had to be called away from the security and safety of that place. And then the Bible says this, From thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. He was called to live by faith. Now, we've romanticized the notion of living by faith, and that's appropriate given the fact that that's what God calls us to do. I'm not suggesting that we should demean or denigrate living by faith, but I am telling you this, living by faith, it looks a lot more fun on somebody else than it does on you. The very nature of living by faith is such that you will be from time to time in problems, in crises, in confusion, in question. You see, if you didn't ever, you wouldn't live by faith if you didn't have to sometimes. 
Let me tell you something. Your flesh will never choose to live by faith. There won't be a single day of your life that, that you wake up and your flesh said, let's just walk by faith today. No, your flesh has to be quieted and your spirit has to be made to walk by faith through the circumstances of life. You see, seen only through this light, Abraham could have viewed these prerequisites as a curse. But, listen carefully, but, Abraham, he left his home, but he found a city whose builder and maker is God. He left his family, but he joined the family of God. He left the safety of his father's house, but he found refuge in the everlasting arms of a heavenly father. Abraham lived by faith, but gained more by faith than he ever could have by sight. And guess what? Now his faith has become sight. What are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying just looking at these prerequisites, it could have looked like a curse, but instead it was a blessing. Notice not only the prerequisites, notice the path of this calling. Look at verse 2. I love how God says this. He says, I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. Now, if that was the last word God had ever spoken on what he was going to do in Abraham's life, you and I would be immensely confused to follow from that point to the day of Abram's death. Because the reality is this, he did not live this thrice-charmed, easy life. Abraham's life, in fact, was fraught with many challenges and many difficulties and many trials. And certainly there were blessings of God in it, but there are things that should he have chosen to do so, he could have also called curses. Think about this with me, this path that God sets him on. It involves three things. Number one, it involves a great nation. He says, I will make of thee a great nation. At this time, Abraham, he is childless. In fact, later on, he will mention and bring up this fact to God. He says, behold, I go childless, and the the, the heir of my house is my steward, Eliezer. And when God makes this statement, I will make of thee a great nation, it looks like an impossible proposition. In fact, Abraham and Sarah would spend many years waiting on God to bring this about. And I began to think about that path of making a great nation. And if he had looked down, what would he have seen? Would he see the doubtful waiting of the barren years when they were waiting for God to keep his promise? Or would he see the joyful worship of the birthday of Isaac? Would he see the grievous exiling of Ishmael, his uh, son, by Hagar, the Egyptian? You can imagine the angst of that moment whenever he has to literally expel and exile his son from their home. Or would he see the glorious exaltation of Isaac? Would he see the agonizing climb up Mount Moriah? Or would he see the rejoicing return from Mount Moriah? See, the truth is, this statement, I will make of thee a great nation, there could have been much cursing in it, but there was much blessing in it as well. Not only did it involve a great nation, it involved a great name. He says this, I will bless thee and make thy name great. You know, you think about Abraham's life. And Abraham, by the time he dies, is a pretty famous individual. And, you know, if you study his life, he's actually buried in a, a, a Canaanite tomb because the, the, the sons of, of Heth, they, they wanted him to have a place where he could bury his wife Sarah when she died. And afterwards he was buried. And they actually refused. They didn't want to take payment for it because they were trying to do to him a great honor. He would wind up being a phenomenally wealthy individual. He would wind up being a powerful individual who would have men of arms at his disposal. And, and But you know, the path to get there didn't look quite that rosy. I wonder if he had looked at it, what he would have seen. Would he see the famine in Israel that would drive him out of the land of Canaan? Or would he see the fame that he garnered in Egypt? Would he see the rejection by his nephew Lot when Lot says, I'll take the greener grass of the plains towards Jordan? Or would he see the rescue of Lot when he would come riding home triumphant, having redeemed his nephew unto himself? Would he see the Canaanites around him hating him? Or would he see on the day of his death the Canaanites honoring him? The preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying this, God brought all this to pass, but it sure enough didn't take the path that Abraham would have chosen. It involved not only a great nation and a great name, but it involved a great nature. I like this. The Bible says, Thou shalt be a blessing. Abraham was a blessing in his life. I don't know. Maybe if you had asked the king of Egypt, he might have called him a ble- not have called him a blessing. Maybe if you had asked some of the Gentile peoples around whom he had warred with, maybe he wouldn't be called a blessing. I, I, I guess maybe if you had asked the, the, the king of Sodom, if you had asked those, those kings of the vale of, of Sidom that he had gone out to war with and smitten, maybe they wouldn't have called him 
a blessing. But you see, that's the reality of it. God said to Abraham, He said, one of these days you and your descendants are going to bless the whole world. The people he's speaking of, spiritually it involves all those that know the Lord by faith, but naturally speaking, it would become the nation of Israel. What a long and checkered history Israel as a people has had. And I began to think about if Abraham could see between the day that he stood and the day that one day God will put them sanctified in the land, I wonder what he would have chosen to focus on. Would he see Israel wandering in the wilderness Or would he see them worshiping in the temple? Would he see Israel sinful or sanctified? Would he see them hypocritical or holy? Would he see them rebellious or restored? Would he see them expelled from the land by the Assyrians and then the Babylonians? Or would he see them exalted in the land when they're brought back in one day by their Messiah? You see, Abraham, if he had had the whole thing in front of him, he could have viewed and focused and emphasized on either thing. But he listened to what God said and he chose to say, if the Lord wants to bless my life, I'll follow him, I will serve him, and I will trust that the things that God brings into my life, even if I don't understand them, even if I can't explain them, even if I don't like them, they will be a blessing. For God has blessed me. That's what's interesting about verse 3. You see, we see the prerequisites of this calling and the path of this calling. But look at verse number 3. We see the promise of this calling. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. In this verse, we have a precious truth. Now, remember the exercise we're doing today. What if we just change that word bless for curse? What if we just change that word curse for bless? What if we just turn this whole thing upside down on its head? Because the truth is... Things that happen in your life, you can view them as a blessing from God or as a curse. And you can choose to bless the Lord in response or you can curse the Lord in response. And so the whole idea is, what if we swap those? Let's do that in that verse. Can we do that together? Let's just do that. Let's just pretend like every bless in the verse is a curse. And let's pretend like every curse in the verse is a bless. How would it read? It would say this, and I will curse them that curse thee (laughs) and bless him that blesseth thee. See, here's the reality of it. It don't matter how you look at your life. It doesn't change the promise of God. You can try to switch it around. You can try to view everything as against you and set about you and afflicting you and persecuting you. But if you're a saved child of God, i got news for you. You may not like it, but one of these days you're going to go to heaven and everything's going to be all right. That may mess up your theology, but one of these days, if you're saved, hey, it may mess up the, the pity party, but one of these days, if you're saved, no matter what you do, no matter how you live, no matter how you choose to view your life, if you're saved by the grace of God, that, that listen, the promises of God, they ain't changing. You say, well, preacher, maybe I could change things if I could see the blessing of God. No, you don't have to change things by seeing the blessing of God. You're blessed if you're born again. You just have to see what is true and reality through the prism of what God's Word declares to be true. I find in this passage that, that Abraham, his, his life, it, it speaks of how we view our calling and our surrender to the Lord. But turn with me to Numbers chapter 22. Numbers chapter 22. I want you to see another instance when the word blessing or blessed looms largely in Scripture. And let's think about this passage. Uh, you know, when, when you come to Numbers chapter 22, the children of Israel, they have been wandering uh, through the wilderness. And, and in that procession of wandering through the wilderness, they have garnered the attention of some of the peoples that live in that place. In fact, their army had destroyed several notable warlords and war chiefs in that area and annihilated their people. And so as they're coming up to the, to the land of, of, of the Moabites... Uh, The king of Moab, he begins to get nervous about the children of Israel. He's worried that if they come by his way, they're going to destroy him. They're going to slay him. And so he tries to devise some way that he can stop them. Now, here's some things that he is convinced of. He knows that they have a real God that is marching at the head of their company. He knows that that God is a powerful God. He knows, in fact, that that God is more powerful than their pagan gods. And he might have even recognized that their God was real and his were not. He is a nervous leader. He does not know what is about to take place. So he devises a plan with his counselors. He says to himself, I cannot fight against their God with my God, but maybe in some way I can rob them of the favor of God. 
And so he goes to a mysterious individual in Scripture, a man by the name of Balaam. Balaam is a prophet of God. He's not a very good one. You be kind to him because I'm a preacher. I just ain't a very good one. Amen. Balaam's a prophet of God. He just, he just ain't a very good one. And the Bible says that, that the king of Moab, he comes to Balaam and he says, here's what I want you to do, Balaam. There's these people, they've come up out of Egypt. They're scaring us. We're nervous. It's obvious they have the favor of their God and their God is a powerful God. But you are a prophet of that God. So I want you to go, Balaam, and you pronounce an incantation, say some words over them and put a hex on them, put a curse upon the children of Israel. Balaam, knowing that that's not how God works, tells them, says, I'm sorry, it's not something that I can do for you. But before he turns them away, he invites them into his house and allows them to stay. Obviously, he was shopping for a better deal, amen. But the Bible says in verse 9 of Numbers 22, God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? Balaam said unto God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, hath sent unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt, which covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. Barak, the same word. In other words, God says, You can't curse them. Because I have blessed them. They seem to believe in some sort of uh, cheap parlor trick version of religion where they could merely say some words and, 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 and spit some poison at people and, and, and get their weak pagan gods to turn against people arbitrarily. But Balaam knows that there's only one God and that that God is not that way. And he understands that because God has favored the children of Israel, there's nothing that he can do to change that matter. And God reiterates this truth and says, Balaam, there's nothing you can do to hurt them because I have blessed them. We could say it this way. This deals with how we view our condition or our situation in life. Now, some of you are going to say, Preacher, I understand serving the Lord is a blessing. But in my life, sometimes I just don't feel like my life is blessed by God. Listen, this is why I don't watch in prosperity preachers. I'm poor. makes me feel bad about my Christianity. Amen. I don't watch them and think I'm going to get a Learjet. I watch them and, and think if, if they were telling the truth, man, I'm a rascal. I'll be sitting down at the bar or something if I'm, if I'm that person. And, and, and you know, when you watch these, pro- I, I, listen, I'm not talking, when I say blessed, I'm not saying it always means prosperity. I'm not saying it always means good health. I'm not saying it means an easy road. I'm not saying it means the applause of men. We need to define the word blessed in the way that God defines it. And when we read this passage, I'm going to be honest with you. What God says here, they are blessed. It was a peculiar statement. You say, preacher, why is that peculiar? Didn't God bless them? Well, He did. But think about the people He's talking about. Notice a few things with me. One, they're a traveling people. They're wandering through the desert. They have no permanent home. They're sojourning. They are tent dwellers. They've not gotten the place that God has appointed. They're just sojourning and traveling through that wilderness. Sort of reminds you of a child of God in this dispensation of grace. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. We are pilgrims and strangers is the New Testament nomenclature. We are pilgrims and strangers, sojourners in this world. And can I tell you this? Sometimes it's hard to be a traveler. Sometimes it ain't comfortable to be a traveler. They were traveling people. Not only that, they were attempted people. They're beset with feebleness, flaws, and failure. If you read the history of the children of Israel in the wilderness, it doesn't exactly look like a glowing resume. They spent most of their time grumbling, complaining, and trying to decide between themselves what the best way was to get rid of Moses. And yet God looks at those very people and says, Don't touch them, Balaam. They're a blessed people. Can I tell you something? Oh, I want to be careful how I say this. God does not bless sin. But if God didn't bless sinners, wouldn't none of us have the blessing of God? And you say, well, preacher, I make mistakes. Well, good. We'll sit together then, because I do too. Preacher, I I do things wrong sometimes. Yep, I'll tick that box as well. Preacher, I'm, I'm tempted at times and, and I have weakness and I have flaws and I'm this imperfect, broken person. Good. You're the kind of person God seeks to deal with. That's who He's interested in. That's who He's dealing with. And you might say, well, preacher, if I was more blessed, I wouldn't have all this temptation in my life. If I was more blessed, I wouldn't make mistakes. No, the truth of the matter is, no matter how blessed you are, your flesh is never blessed. 
I see in this passage they were attempted people. I, let me say this too. They were troubled people. Without hearth and home, feeling vulnerable and exposed. They literally have enemies on either side of them. They were chased out of Egypt uh, under the, the, the providential uh, protection of God. And God brought them out with a high hand. But don't forget, there's chariots uh, filling the road up behind them. You understand that all throughout the wilderness journeys you find occasion after occasion in which often because of their own carnality and often because of their own nearsightedness, but nonetheless there are problems on several occasions. God had to intervene and God miraculously slew large groups of people on several occasions. If you were to ask this question, what did Moses do that whole 40 years going through the wilderness? You know what he did? Mostly funerals. By best estimates, two and a half million people came out of Egypt and not a one of them over 20 years old set foot in Canaan. You can sit down and do the math your own self sometime, but you know what they did? Most of the time, they buried people. You imagine how hard that must have been? It was, we look at it and we say it was a deliverance march. They would have called it a death march. And they're a troubled people. Then let me say this, they're a targeted people. The reason we're reading about them is because this king has said, I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to overcome them. I'm going to drive them out of the wilderness and by extension out of the land of Canaan and the place of God's promise and God's blessing. You see, here's the truth of the matter. You may be a sojourning people. You may be a sinful people. You may be a struggling people. You may be a set about and spied upon people. But none of that means that you don't have the blessing of God on your life. Even with all those things. Hey, this was a peculiar statement. But let me say this. When we go a little further in their history, it turns out to be a proven statement. Say, so why is that, preacher? Well, they enjoyed God's protection. They enjoyed God's provision. Their shoes never waxed old on their feet. They always had food to eat. No matter where they went and what happened, God put Himself like a wall of fire about His people. They enjoyed God's pardon. When they came out of Egypt, it was under the blood of the Passover lamb. A beautiful picture forward-looking to the sacrifice of the lamb slain, the blessed lamb of God, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And when they came out, they came out uh, under the pardon of God with redemption money in their pockets. They enjoyed God's presence. (laughs) Uh, The presence of the Lord went before them, pillar of cloud, pillar of fire. And every day they lived readily in the immediate presence of their God. And then let me say this, they enjoyed God's promise. No matter how bad things got, they still had hope. They still had the presence of the Lord. They still had God protecting them. They still had God providing for them. They still, God had pardoned them. You say, preacher, you don't understand. My health's falling apart. I'm not blessed. My money's gone through a, through a bag with a hole in it. I'm not blessed. My kids have gone to hell and gone to the devil. I'm not blessed. And I'm telling you, all those things can be true and you can still be blessed of God. It's really a matter of what you choose. To look upon. You see, I, I see in, in Numbers 22 a passage that deals with how we view our condition. But go back with me to our text. I want to show you a couple more things and then we'll be done. In Abraham, we learn how to view our calling as blessed. It may involve some difficulties. But at the end of the day, the promise of God don't change. And He will bless us. How we view our condition in life. You say, preacher, everything's going bad. I must not have the blessing of God. No, God can still be blessing you even in spite of those things. What are you going to choose to focus on in your life? But here in Job chapter 2, we come to a man that I think we could objectively say is not seemingly in a blessed situation. When we look at Job's life, I don't think it would be inappropriate to say he's not blessed. He has lost everything short of his life that a person could lose. And yet still, we find, rather than cursing the Lord, he blessed the Lord. Let me say this. This speaks of how we view our calamities. And it speaks of our suffering and our loss. We all sometimes imagine we have a breaking point. And the truth of the matter is, you know, I've got these places in, and we, we, we did the parking lot back here. You remember that? I'll use that illustration. We, we had to do, cause the, the, the trash dumpster pulls in and they wreck the parking lot back there and tear up all creation and don't care because that's the world. And if you go back, and I ain't sore about it either. And if you go, if you go back to our back drive or if you go to, back to our back parking lot, 
you'll find we've concreted a lot of those areas because the concrete will hold up better than the asphalt will. But when you walk along those concrete paths, every so often you'll come to a line that they have in it. I don't know if you know that, but these are called brake lines. And the idea is you're not going to keep it from breaking. So you want to break it before it can break anything further. We all say, well, preacher, I feel like I have a breaking point. Yeah, and it's probably far too low. It's probably... The problem is not that you're breaking when you're breaking. The problem is you're not breaking earlier. You listening to me? The, the, the problem is, is not that you're not strong enough. The problem is you're too strong. The, the, the problem is not that, that, that you have problems to bring to the Lord. The problem is you wouldn't bring them to Him sooner. Can I say something good about Job? He learned how to break when God was trying to break him. He's a broken man. But in that brokenness, like that potsherd he took to scrape his boils, he found a means to bless the Lord. Notice two simple thoughts here and we'll be done. Notice number one, the reaction of Job's character. Job, he's not pretending like everything's fine. In fact, if you read through the book of Job, you'll find a lot of grumbling and complaining. I mean, it ain't as bad as a Baptist church, but it's, it's, it's pretty bad, you know? And so when you go through the book of Job, he's not denying that things are bad. In fact, there's times he cursed the day he was born, but he wouldn't curse the Lord. There's times that he cursed the day that he drew breath, but he wouldn't curse the Lord. He's not blind to the problems that he has, but he's chosen to react in faith. How do we see that faith in his life? Well, I see it in a few ways. Look with me in chapter 1. Notice a couple verses here. This is the first sort of moment of declaration of faith in Job's experience here. And the Bible says in verse 20, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb and naked shall I return thither. The devil gave and the devil hath taken away. Is that what your Bible reads? Oh, no, no. This would be, The Lord gave... And the devil hath taken away. That's what some of you think. But that's not what Job says. He says this, the Lord gave. And the Lord hath taken away. Can I tell you where I can see Job's faith in how he reacts to this calamity? Number one, he recognized the Lord in it. This is something prosperity preachers will never understand because their concept of God is disconsonant with the Bible's concept of God. I remember hearing a preacher years ago, and I've shared this, I guess, several times here lately, so I ain't absent-minded. You just need to hear it. Um, I remember hearing a preacher on the radio years ago say, we have a good God, we have a bad devil. If it's good, it came from God. If it's bad, it came from the devil. But please don't give that boy the copy of the book of Job. It will break his mind. He won't know what to do with it. You know one of the things I love about Job? You know, the devil, what he wants more than anything, he's prideful. And what he wants more than anything is to boast in his dominance. That's what we see in Job chapter 1. The Lord says, you know, whither art thou come from? He said, walking to and fro in the earth. That, 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 that's a, a, a Hebrew idiom for saying, doing whatever I want. That's what he's saying. I've been doing whatever I want. I've been going where I want. I've been, I've been, I've been attacking who I want. I've been killing who I want. I've been destroying who I want. I've been having the run of the place. And God looks at him and says, hast thou considered my servant Job? That there's none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, and one that escheweth evil and feareth God. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, you think you run all this, but you don't run Job. You think you run everything, but you don't run Job. Here's what the devil wanted more than anything. He wanted to boast in it. He wanted to say, see, I destroyed him. I, I destroyed him. I killed him. I broke him. You couldn't break him, God, but I broke him. And when I broke him, he cursed you to your face, God. See, I'm more powerful than you. Man, don't you know, it just had, you talk about a bee in a bonnet. You talk about, I mean, you talk about, oh, you know it had to just drive him crazy. That all through the book of Job, one thing Job refused to do was give the devil credit for anything going on in his life. Listen to me this morning. We're too quick to give the devil credit for things. We are. Everything bad happens in our life. We say, well, the devil did this. But the truth of the matter is, hey, it could be God doing that because he's trying to work in your life. Hey, don't don't be. I hope your faith is not so paper thin that you can't handle a God that does things you don't expect. Sometimes, I, I hope you have enough faith to recognize there's going to be times that God does things that that you don't understand, and you instead of just running to say, "Well, I, I guess it's affliction, I guess it's persecution," instead take a moment and say, "I wonder what God's trying to teach me through this." 
I like it, man. He recognized the Lord in his calamity. He didn't say, well, it's these people, it's those people, it's the devil, it's this, it's that. He said, God has given and God has taken away. And then I like the next phrase. He says this, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. What do we do about that? What do we do about that? Blessed be the name of the Lord. We don't bless the Lord because he blesses us. We bless him because he deserves the blessing. We bless him because he's a blessed God. We don't bless him because we're a blessed people. We're a blessed people because he's a blessed God. We don't bless him because we're a blessed people. Job wasn't a blessed person in this moment in his life, but God was still a blessed God. So in spite of his brokenness, in spite of his calamity, in spite of his tragedy, in spite of his confusion, he says, I I don't know what God's doing. I know God's doing something, but I don't know what God's doing. And it hurts me and it's painful. But though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And even though I don't understand it, I'll bless him anyway. When I read this, I, I like this. He rejoiced in the Lord in his calamity. There ain't never a day in your life you wake up that you can't rejoice in the Lord. There's plenty of days I wake up I don't rejoice in the Lord. And that's probably true for you as well. But there's not a day you'll wake up in your life that you can't bless the Lord. If Job could wake up on this day and bless the Lord, then you and I can rejoice in our calamity. And then I notice this. I, I like this. Job rested in the Lord in his calamity. This is key. Listen to what Job says in Job 23, verse 8. He's talking about trying to find God in the midst of the darkness. And he says, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. On the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, but I cannot see him. Let me pause here. Here's what the unbridled optimist would say. Here's what the power of positive thinking would say. He would say, even if you can't find him, pretend like you did. If you looked on the right and he's not there, pretend he's there. Just imagine that he's there. It would say, well, God's everywhere, so you'll never feel lonely. You'll never feel without him. You'll never be confused. You'll never be confounded. That's what the power of positive preaching would say. What does the Bible teach? Job says, I go forward. He's not there. I understand he's everywhere, and I understand he never leaves us and forsakes us. But you'll go through times in your life where when you go looking for him, it'll feel like he ain't there. You'll go looking for him. It'll look like he ain't there. There's a reason the songwriter said somewhere in the shadows is standing Jesus. Because sometimes it's in the shadows that he's working. And you can't find him. He says, I, I go forward, he's not there. Backward, I cannot perceive him. Left hand, but I can't behold him. Right hand, I cannot see him. So what does he do? So he must not exist. It's not what Job did. So he must have abandoned me. No, it's not what Job did. Well, I'll just pretend like he's there and put on a smile and pretend like everything's fine. No, it's not what Job did. But he did say this. He said, but he knoweth the way that I take. And when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. I can't find him, but I know he knows where I am. I can't understand him, but I know he understands me. I can't figure him out, but I know he's got it all figured out. And though my life is in pieces and I can't understand and I'm hurting and I'm in pain and I'm agonizing, none of that changes an unchangeable God. And if He was good when the pasture lands were full, if He was good when my children were feasting in their house, if He was good when my health was strong, then He must still be good today when I visit the graves of my children. He must still be good today when I'm eating in poverty. He must still be good today when my health is failing. I don't know. Everything's changed. But I know God doesn't change. And if God was good then, He must still be good now. I love it, man. He rested in the Lord in his calamity. I, I see I see Job's reaction, the reaction of his character. But then let's just, because we wouldn't be doing right if we didn't do this. Turn over chapter 42. Can I just notice real quick the conclusion of Job's calamity? I want to leave you wondering. You might, you, you, might, you might have never seen the end of this movie, all right? And you might not know how this thing goes. You might have left before the, before the credits rolled. So I want you to understand what happens here. For over 30 chapters, almost 40, Job works his way through a crisis of faith. doesn't understand, but he says, I'll trust the Lord anyway. And then all of a sudden, God shows up. God begins to talk. When God shows up, he did not give Job answers. He asked Job questions. 
Can I tell you this? You think it'll be easier if you have all the answers. Probably not. You don't have to understand your problems. You just need to understand the Lord. And that'll be enough. But listen to how this all ends in Job 42, verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came there unto him all his brethren, all his sisters. By the way, if you're lonely for family, just come into a little money. They'll start showing up. (laughs) And all they that had been of his acquaintance before and did eat bread with him in his house. And they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave him a piece of money and every one an earring of gold. Verse 12 says this, So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. We're a blessed people and nothing changes that. But your God is honest enough with you to recognize that sometimes you'll find yourself in a place in life where it don't look very blessed and it don't feel very blessed. I like the way the Holy Ghost says it here. He blessed the latter end more than his beginning. Tells me this, he wasn't pretending like all that suffering was a blessing. But just saying this, the blessing outlasted the curse. At the end of the day, here's four things God did. Number one, Job, he was delivered. Preacher, it'll never change. Yeah, it will. One day it will. It may never change in this life. I know that. But if you're saved by the grace of God, hey, heaven will fix a lot of things. Heaven will fix everything you got wrong with your life. I see he was delivered. Not only that, he was increased. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. In other words, he wound up better than he would have had it not been for the trials. Not only that, he was vindicated. Boy, I don't know, man. Maybe I'm carnal, but I bet that felt good. All them people that had talked about him and criticized him and Monday Monday morning quarterbacked his, his Christianity, his religion had to come with their tail between their legs and admit that he was right. He was vindicated. And ultimately, we just have to say it this way, the way the, that the Lord says it, verse 12, the Lord blessed. He was a blessed man. I'll tell you this in your life. I'm not asking you to pretend you don't have problems. I'm asking you to trust God anyway. I'm not asking you to pretend as though things aren't difficult. I'm asking you to trust that God has a plan in spite of you not having one. I'm not saying people haven't hurt you. I'm asking you to trust the Lord even in spite of what people have done. And I'm asking you in how we view living for the Lord, how we view the events that occur in our life, and how we view our reaction and responsibility to the Lord. Let's choose blessing and not cursing. I'll tell you this, if we'll look for it, we'll find it there. For God has surely blessed His people. Let's bow together this morning. The altar's open. A musician's going to come and play. I invite you to come this morning. If God's spoken to your heart, would you meet the Lord? down in this altar. I don't know what God may have spoken to you about. I don't have to know. But I do want you to feel at home to come meet the Lord in this altar. I will tell you this. If He spoke to you, there's a reason for it. So meet Him down here and speak bluntly with Him about it. Pour your heart out before Him. And let God deal with that matter in your life. Lord, I pray that You bless this invitation. That it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.